Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Booze, Booms and Busts podcast. My name is Boai Shoshan and as ever I'm joined by Sam Volkering to discuss beer and to discuss the movements in financial markets this week. Now uh, as it is episode 20 we probably should, uh, we do actually have quite a nice announcement to make which is that we have been working for uh, a little while now with a brewery called Cheddar Ales on uh, making a special edition brew, a double IPA uh, that's called Quantitative Ease. And uh, it's a 7.4% uh, ABV, and uh, it is 7.4% specifically because the Bank of England's balance sheet is over £740 billion. Pounds. Uh, now, we, this, uh, this beer is, has been bottled. We actually haven't had any of it yet, but it is being bottled, conditioned as, uh, as we speak. And it should be with us in uh, maybe even by next week. So we'll be able to be discussing that over the podcast. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's been great working with Cheddar Ales on this. And uh, anyone listening to this will be able to buy some while it lasts from Cheddar Ales. But Sam, in terms of uh, the, the beer we're going to be drinking this week and uh, the topics to discuss, what would, uh, what would you like to start with today? Well, I am, I'm, first of all, I am very excited about our incoming, um, our incoming beer. Uh, I, I believe that it is going to be, without doubt, our first triple B rated beer. <laughs> we already know. There's, there's no other option, I'm pretty sure. Um, so yeah, can't wait for that and, and, and give, it a, give it a taste and, and a drink next week. And as, as you say, people can, can get some for themselves. I, I believe it's a limited run. So um, uh, yeah. get your hands on the quantitative ease. Um, while yeah, you can. and uh, just, yeah, just on that actually, uh, with, the, with the quantitative ease, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be incredibly hoppy. Uh, so I have seen a, an image actually of it being stirred and it uh, is so full of hops that uh, it, it really requires significant force just to stir this thing around. Uh, and they're full of hops, it's literally leaping at the uh, barrels. Pretty much actually. And uh, so it's been dry hopped uh, with seven grams of hops per liter. And to give you an idea of, uh, sort of how hoppy that is, normally for this brewery, they're dr- normally just doing two to three grams per liter. So this thing is really, uh, it's really going to be pretty potent by the time we have it. Uh, incredibly hoppy indeed, but of course we haven't had it yet. But it will be, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to quantitative ease. Uh, as it is inspired by quantitative easing, perhaps when the Bank of England's balance sheet increases to maybe 800 billion or maybe even finally get to the one trillion pound sterling mark, we'll be able to, to increase the ABV on this and do a, a QE2, uh, which would be maybe 8, 8% or, or even 10%, depending on, uh, on the size of the Bank of England, England's balance sheet. So really, it's driven by, uh, by the good people at uh, Threadneedle Street. I, f- I feel like if we end up doing a QE2, that uh, our, our um, label has to be um, basically a ship sinking at that point. The QE2 <laughs> sinking at that point. The great, Her, Her Majesty's great uh, cruise liner, the QE2, but, but sinking under a pile of helicopter and, and, um, and, and government distributed monies. Yeah, carrying too much gold bullion or maybe, maybe not <laughs> yeah. enough on it. Would be well, miss it. Hits a giant product. iceberg in the shape of uh, the Bank of England. Oh no, that's a good idea, actually. Yeah, yeah, be, be sort of striking the striking the sides of Threadneedle Street and getting uh, yeah, yes, I mean, well, below the waterline. Yeah, there you go. I think we've literally just come up with the artwork for QE2 when we get around to that. Yeah, um, yeah. But as for today, we should probably speak of the beers we are drinking. Again, we're drinking different beers uh, to each other. We are almost due for a new order, actually. So hopefully we'll get back in sync 
you know, the great boy band in sync uh, with each other with the beers we're drinking. But today, I'm my first one is a peach sour from Anspach and Hobday in London. Uh, this is pretty light on. This is just a a cruisy 3.5% uh, ABV, but um, is a a modern take on a traditional Berner Weiss style sour beer. Um, obviously, the name says it all with the peach uh, tinge to it. So it uh, should be refreshing, should be light, should be easy to drink, but hopefully packed full of taste. Mm. Yeah, uh, I am drinking a uh, Keller lager and it's a very large can. This thing is uh, half a liter, mm. uh, 4.8%. And yeah, it's made by Braybrook Beer Company which is in Leicestershire. Uh, yeah, a product of the UK. And uh, they do have a Twitter account and things like that. Vegan friendly, uh, as so many of our beers that we seem to be uh, consuming are. Uh, store operating called. Yeah, it looks, uh, it's got, it's quite an intimidating size of can when you get to 500 mils. Uh, but it's quite clean, nice uh, nice cream label. Uh, but yeah, we'll be, uh, we'll be going through that. Now, Sam, in terms of uh, what's been going on this week, uh, what do you make of the recent sell-off we've got in the U.S. stock market? Because the VIX wow. has managed to uh, get lively again, just in time for the U.S. election. It does appear that, you know, just as everything was seeming, you know, we were like we we're almost at the U.S. election, the stock market wasn't going to do anything wild beforehand. It seems that it's come out with a blind swing just before uh, just before it actually happens. What do you make of it? Uh, it has. It's it's. It's gone. It's gone a little bonkers, which is unusual, apparently, from from the commentary I've been reading. Is, and I never really paid too much attention to the market before an election. And to be fair, I, I almost when I look at the, the market, I, I I'm not really looking at the market and the election at the same time. Albeit they are probably probably linked, but it's um it's piles of uncertainty which are piling in. Investors are, are worried. They're they're concerned. They have every right to be. Um, you know, we've, we've been on record here, you know, you were talking about your, your large Trump bet, um, yep. which I, I completely agree with. I think, I think Trump's going to win this. I think it's got all the hallmarks of 2016, uh, over it again. And, um, that, but, the, but with that, there's a caveat to that is that saying that Trump, and this is where I think I've said this before and people are like, Oh, how can, how can you say, you know, the blue army is strong. It's like, I was like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. Just because we think Trump's going to win doesn't necessarily think uh, mean we think that Trump is a, is a great leader. Doesn't necessarily mean Biden's a great leader either. In fact, if anything, I still um, subscribe to the idea that, that most of the world is running under a cacistocracy, um, which is really the ruled by the worst um, available in a nutshell. So none of them are good. And, and I would like to reinforce that point is that I think most governments and most leaders in the free world today are, uh, are pretty rubbish. Um, I, I don't much favor any of them back in Australia. I don't much favor any of them here in the UK, nor in the US. But the fact of the matter is, one of them's going to be a prime minister or a president. So them's the breaks. Um, now, having said that, uh, my, my uh, short of the NASDAQ 100 in the last week has played out quite nicely with all of this. <laughs> and, yeah. and and I, I i feel like my my timing was either good or lucky or um maybe maybe the the top end of town is starting to factor in a bit more of this uncertainty and investors are starting to realize that perhaps things have just gotten a little out of hand 
in the lead up to all of this? Hmm. Uh, to further to your statement that uh, most of the leaders in the free world are uh, not the best folks for the job, uh, or at least uh, not 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 the folks that you may like or or uh, would really want to have the job. I would add that I, I think in the unfree world a, a similar thing is is taking place. Uh, I'm not sure it's just the free world that has the problem. It depends on which side you're on, I suppose, in that sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. What do you mean? No, you're right. The, the, they're all, the government. Look, government. It's. Uh, I come in and out of out of the necessity for government. I, I don't. I think that the, the society in general, most people need to be led, which is fine. Uh, I get that. I don't think. I, I, I'm all for minimal governance. That's what I'm, I'm trying to say. A minarchist. You're a minarchist. <laughs> a minarchist. Sure. Well, I don't know what you, what the definition of. I've, I've never been very good with understanding the difference between left wing, right wing, uh, center left, alt right. It's confusing to me. Uh, but my view is that minimal governance leave a lot of responsibility to the individuals uh, and provide them with the tools and resources to, to, to effectively communicate with each other with certain necessary public services. Um, but I think that when you take a lot of power away from people, you dumb them down. Um, and I think being able to distribute some of that power back to people to make their own decisions uh, I like to be pretty optimistic about the fact that people would actually do a pretty good job as a collective with the right tools and networks to, to, to sort of do good things within their communities, which then flows out to the wider community. But um, that's not necessarily how governance works or has worked for the last, you know, how many hundred years that we've sort of been under the rule of centralized authority. So that's just my take on it. And, and maybe that changes in the near future with, with advances in technology communications and this current uh, uh, flow, I suppose, of, of distrust or mistrust, however you want to describe it with, um, with current government and current, you know, authority, whether it be the central bank or governments. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things. I, power shift in society is something where you feel like right now we're in this, we're at the, a point where maybe there is sufficient um, opportunity for change. I mean, I think this is sort of a, a market theory as well is that the biggest opportunity and change comes from some of the greater public um, and, and societal uh, crises. And maybe we're at another point where that's going to happen, right? Yeah. Yeah, a lot we could unpick there. I think, yeah, it's a just in terms of how uh, you know our current environment now with the Wu flu sort of turned out. When it comes to, I mean, when the idea that we're still in the free world or the word free world in general applies quite so much when you consider the kind of restrictions in Wales, where uh, oh shops God. are supposed to not be selling items that are not useful and it was very they, they blocked sanitary very, products from being sold. yeah i mean it, it, it feels very sort of soviet union with uh, you know to each <laughs> each to their needs kind of thing and yeah. you, it does make you wonder if someone in wales feels free right um mm. and considering you know the uh the police in this country are very happy to prosecute people for things they put on twitter 
the mm. idea of us being in a free world or living in a free country when that is the case i think is hard to hard to imagine so yeah it's um we can go the idea of free world unfree world things like that and different modes of government um yeah it's uh it's quite a sort of hornet's nest i think of, of problems contradictions yeah. well con let me let, let me ask you a question right so I, I I I agree with you that the, the how we even think of the term free uh, right now is is up for debate. But what I mean, what 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 do you what do you do about it? I think is the question that I always end up coming back to. If all of this shit continues as it is for the next twelve months or eighteen months, what what do you do? Like as a as a individual, what can you do and i think that's where we always need to come back to is what impact and control do you have even yeah. in a world where perhaps a lot of that freedom and control is still taken away from you i mean do you do you do you go defensive do you get the bolt hole out or do you get more active and more um almost aggressive i suppose in how you look Rebellious, at your wealth yeah. and the things you can control yeah and when what yeah and there's also on the side of uh you know i think there are a lot of people who are considering maybe leaving the country and going to greener pastures elsewhere yep um, it does make you wonder just how much a population can take when it comes to these kind of restrictions uh and you know just how much they'll put up with when it comes to you know protests and, and demonstrations and things um yeah i mean i guess we've got we've gone uh, a little off topic with this <laughs> with this thing you go when it comes to market realities and stuff um I d it does feel to me that i mean you're seeing in play certain areas in africa where lockdowns have really led to some serious problems i mean you're talking about people starving and you, you you're talking about sort of what people what people fear when welfare is removed here in the uk is playing out when we impose it when when uh, these uh, poorer nations use the policies that we can afford to do in richer nations and get away with for a while and it feels uh, you know really very tragic when uh, you see that you know we can get away with this lockdown and mm. print lots of money and uh, you know pay for furlough schemes for a very long time uh, but this is really a very privileged position to be in because we're already a rich economy. Yeah. Uh, and people thinking that this is, you know, feeling very self-righteous about us doing this, I don't think they can really appreciate how long it can be done for and just how much damage it's doing. And when you see, uh, you know, what, those, what things like lockdowns do to poorer nations mm -hmm. uh, and the incredible catastrophe that it, that it creates the tragedy it creates uh, i think it really puts into perspective just you know how much you're playing with fire here and how assumptive and comfortable people are with um you know with the the sort of the degree of wealth that we have in this country and the uh, extremes that the government can get away with for a time when it comes to uh, destroying the uh, you know the economy effectively um yeah i i I, so, so with that, right, as well, there's what, something I've noticed as well is that so we, we obviously send out a lot of promotional stuff with, with work, right? Yeah. And sometimes we put adverts out there on, on some of the social media channels and things like that. And I was talking about this with some of the guys earlier today 
about the morality of the situation of things. So I remember when we put out some advertising about the investment opportunity with 5G technologies and a number of comments, and this was, I think this was back in March and April, a number of the comments around that advertisement, um, trying to, you know, educate and open people's eyes as to the investment opportunity with, with, with technologies like 5G. Uh, some of the comments were, were sort of like, how can you even be thinking about this sort of thing when there are people losing their jobs and there are, you know, there are starving communities in, in impoverished nations around the world. Uh, how greedy do you have to be to think about this stuff? And that, you know, that, that, that gets me thinking because it's not like we don't care about any of that sort of thing. You know, it's, no one wants to see that. No one wants to, to know that that exists, but it does exist. That it's a reality that we have to face and that things do need to change for those things to change. But at the same time, you can't stop and do nothing at all because of something. And again, it's hard to, to not come across as cold necessarily or callous with this, but you need to understand and appreciate what's happening in the world, but you also can't just put the brakes on your own situation or, you know, or, or looking to investments and investment markets because of some of the things that are happening in other places that you don't necessarily have control of. And so there's, I think there's this uh, perennial sort of push and pull against um, investing in general in times of crisis where a lot of people don't take any action because they get too caught up in the negativity of everything. Now that's not to say that you should ignore it or it's not important or that you shouldn't, you know, care about these things or, or worry about them or even do things to try and help fix them. But you also can't ignore what's there in front of you and, and your own financial situation as well. It's, it's a difficult position because, you know, you do, you sometimes you feel guilty um, when you are looking at the situation. It's like all of a sudden there are all these great investment opportunities and, you know, for me putting money into the market. And then, you know, all of a sudden you, the next you know, hour you read 10,000 people have just lost their job. So it's a weird moral position to find yourself in, in this market. But I, I, as, as harsh as it, maybe it comes across, I think the worst thing that people can do is to do nothing at all. Yeah, I think there's a, I think, I do think there is a line when it comes to, uh, you know, the moral edge of investing, right? So if, as you describe, when you get a market crash, if there were no buyers, then this entire thing wouldn't work, right? So the, the, it, you need there to be, if there were no buyers, then, um, it would, the, then the failure would be worse, right? It'd be more extreme. So if there were no people yeah. looking after their own self-interest and saying, a rich asset is now cheap, I'm going to buy it. Well, then that asset would just would evaporate and it would you know, bankrupt the, the, com the company in question or the government in question would no longer be able to raise capital. And so would, uh, would collapse, right? They wouldn't have any access to capital to carry on going. So uh, I don't think it really, I think people, um, people getting upset over uh, investors taking advantage of an opportunity, 
that I don't think they're seeing the other side of the coin that by taking advantage of an opportunity and buying a cheap or distressed asset, they are doing a service to the asset uh, you know, issuer ultimately right? by lending their capital to these to these uh, either either countries or it could be to uh, you know more likely to be uh, companies either through bonds or stocks. I mean they are they are doing a favor to that company or to that country, right? Uh, otherwise, that company or the country shouldn't. Well, like, well, they wouldn't have issued this in the first place if they weren't relying on that. It's almost generosity, but it's the magic of capitalism where everyone's looking after their own interests and everyone gets, uh, you know, richer and wealthier and more prosperous as a result. But when it comes to uh, you know sort of the morality of this, I mean, I think you know uh, my views on on various investments. So in terms of uh, you know, uh, buying Chinese assets, for example, uh, you know, I've no, I've no issue at all with, uh, you know, the Chinese people whatsoever, but the Chinese communist party runs uh, what's called civil military fusion. And that means any of the money that you buy or any, any assets that you buy. Um, uh, so sorry, not any of the money you buy, any of the assets that you buy or any of the, uh, you know, if you're, if you're funding a Chinese company to some degree, you're actually, it's, you know, it's not the issue with the company or it may not be the issue with the company, uh, but you're capitalizing a Chinese bank. And in doing so, you are allowing the state to then leverage the capital in, capital in that bank to then uh, you know, finance its deeds, which uh, can be uh, incredibly uh, horrific and brutal. So I'm sort of uh, I'm against that in general. So you know the Ch Chinese stocks, for example, Chinese bonds, you know, panda bonds. Uh, you know, I'm not I I I, I draw a line there. I'm like I'm not going to go anywhere near that because if I am capitalizing a Chinese bank, then I'm empowering the Chinese Communist Party. So you know, even if the company has done, you know, the company uh, in more cases than not, the company will be perfectly honorable business. They're just trying to uh, you know get wealthier as as everyone else's. Uh, however, the uh, the mechanism by which they're doing their business. If I buy that asset, or if I fund that company to some degree, if I even buy their product, I am inadvertently capitalizing a Chinese bank, and in doing so, uh, you know, making the uh, influence of the Chinese Communist Party uh, greater. So, I mean, that's that's where I draw a line. But that is way different from buying an asset when it crashes. So, I'm going way further out into the sticks and saying that's where I draw the line here. I'm fine with, uh, you know, businesses that for, you know, casino companies or when it comes mm -hmm. to uh, things like, uh, you know, like Raytheon, for example, which makes guided sure. missiles. I have no issue with that um, because, you know, it's a, <laughs> they, they make arms uh, and they're only allowed to sell those arms to, uh, you know, to other countries, which the government, which they're in, the US and UK, et cetera, have, uh, have vetted and have decided to. So it's not there. Um, you know, it's not like they're uh, if they if they were if they weren't doing it, ultimately somebody else would so it would be either a Russian or a Chinese company that would be making those arms, uh, but yeah we're getting into all sort of the the moral gray areas and and whatnot. But for me, I mean the when it comes to the moral side of investing, the the line I draw is, is ultimately one with Chinese Communist Party. That's I think that's yeah. the main one that I do. Uh, so that's in, yeah. interesting one then. Um, so I read I read today or it might've been yesterday. So Ant Financial is the yeah. big spinoff out of uh, Alibaba. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so what I was reading, so I think, I think they're going to, their IPO is going to be, uh, you know, one of the biggest ever, but they're only allocating a very small proportion of that uh, company to retail investors. I think it's somewhere in the vicinity of like 30 billion or something like that. But the, the valuation of the company is going to be much greater. 
uh, than that. Yeah, but the, yeah, the float is thirty billion. Yeah. Yeah. The, what, so what I read though was that um, there's been over three trillion dollars of interest from retail investors uh, trying to get a slice of this IPO. Right. Yeah. So you're that's the it's it's very well it's massively oversubscribed. So yeah. I, mean, I think six times oversubscribed the other day, and then I heard it again it was eight times oversubscribed. So effectively, they're just taking the the initial float size that's of thirty billion mark, and then they're just multiplying it out by the number of people supposedly that want to get it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it does, there, there's a very interesting dynamic that takes place there where uh, with, without getting too technical, you've got the China A shares and then you've got the China H set, H shares. So you've got the, the listing Kong. for financial, it'll be IPO'd in both Shanghai and in Hong Kong. Yep. Uh, foreign investors by and large can only really get into the Hong Kong holding. Mm -hmm. uh, and while uh, Chinese citizens and you know uh, people who've been vetted by the CCP are allowed to get in on the on the A shares, you know, over in Shanghai, and it creates this interesting thing because uh, you know China is still very sort of protective. Well, Chinese Communist Party is still very sort of protective over the A shares, and they, they don't want foreigners getting access to it. But um, interestingly, you can't short anything on in Shanghai, right? Short selling is banned. Uh, and as there's no means of arbitraging between the H shares and the A shares, really, what you end up with is with totally different asset prices on both exchanges. And th this can actually expand to a 100% premium between <laughs> Shanghai and Hong Kong. And because capital isn't allowed to cross there to correct, to actually make that arbitrage, you know, no one's taking a share from Shanghai and taking it to Hong Kong to sell it. Yeah. Uh, you know, that those, these price disparities can continue for a very long time. So it'll be interesting to see what and financial, so just how, how that share ends up trading because uh, there's no shorting line in Shanghai. So generally speaking, the shares are, share price is always going to be higher. But in Hong Kong, because you're allowing short selling, you're allowing foreign capital, you'd imagine that to be a much more honest reflection of the valuation of the company. Um, I, do, I don't know. I've not looked into it in a, in a great uh, deal of uh, detail when it comes to and financial and the listing itself. And, you know, just how much of it's going to be allocated in Hong Kong, how much is going to be in Shanghai. But, I mean, this is going to be the mother of all IPOs. I mean, it's this is going to be massive. I mean, we say 30 billion. Oh, well, it's only a small size of Amphinancial's value. But, I mean, 30 billion as an IPO. I mean, it's the biggest it IPO ever. I mean, it's bigger yeah. than Saudi Aramco. It's, uh, I think, anyway. Um, yeah, it, it's, I think it's up there around Saudi Aramco, if not, if not bigger, like you say. And it's, I mean, I've even heard... And I, I've spoken to some people that wanted to get some exposure to the IPO, but knew there was no chance in hell they were actually going to get in on the IPO. And so the approach for them has kind of been, well, where are the Alibaba holdings and who's got big allocations to Alibaba with, um, within some ETFs? So I know, I think it's the ARC Innovation yeah, ARC, ETF. Yeah. The ARC, always ARC. ARC K. And uh, yeah. I think it's got a massive Alibaba exposure. And so the logical progression is they'll have a reasonably big ant financial exposure off the back of that then as well. That ARC, that ARC ETF is a really interesting one, man. It's like, done pretty yeah. well, you know. Oh, 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 100%. And, you know, against many an odd in terms of mm. the sayers and the the those who criticize it. Uh, mm. Yeah, it's really, it that, yeah, that, ARC in general is a very interesting subject, I think. Uh, just the because of what they they own Bitcoin, right? So yeah. and it's actually been one of the 
one of the causes for various Bitcoin price movements has been attributed to flows into ARK. Uh, and at the same time, it's also a massive holder in Tesla as well. Yeah. So flows into ARK and then rebalancing their portfolio. Uh, there are arguments made that when Tesla really booms a load, that can lead to Bitcoin going up and things like that. Um, and similarly, here we are again, and ARK is at the center of this and financial issue where, you know, and for, uh, you know, Ark is going to be uh, probably in there, uh, you know, with Alibaba on that and getting good at decent exposure to the, uh, the, uh, and financial IPO. Um, I do, it's, it's quite interesting just how, uh, polarizing Ark is because, uh, and the lady, uh, who manages that, she gets an awful lot of flack for, uh, you know, she'd been incredibly bullish on Tesla, for example. Yeah. Uh, against and and ultimately been proved right. I mean, yeah, there's no uh, whether or not her original argument or thesis has played out. I mean, she has been completely right in yeah. the value. Returns basis. speak for themselves in that situation. Yeah, I mean, scoreboard doesn't lie, right? Nope. Uh, and here we are again, and it's Arc is at the center of the of this. Uh, you know, people trying to get an access to Ant Financial. Uh, so, how do you um, like speak, just well, just on the idea of, of of companies or funds owning Bitcoin? Um, so. You, you probably were, and people might not be though, that one of the one of the big listed companies that got a Bitcoin exposure was a company called MicroStrategy that yes. went and they went and bought 38, I think it was about 38,250 Bitcoin. And they bought in at, um, I think it was around somewhere, I think, I, think, I think it's an average price of about 11,000 US dollars, right? I saw this great chart yesterday. Uh, it was on Twitter. Oh, it was a little little graph. And uh, apparently, I, I haven't verified these numbers, but I, I imagine they're probably right because, you know, it's Twitter, right? <laughs> but, um, so it said that MicroStrategy has earned $78 million in the last three and a half years from their business operations. So if you take their net income from 2017, 2018, 2019, which, mind you, has been growing year on year on year, their net income, and their net income through the second quarter of this year, it's about $78 million. In the last two months since they bought Bitcoin and the volume and the amount that they bought Bitcoin, um, the, the number of Bitcoin that they own, they've made $100 million in, in paper profits in their Bitcoin holding in the last two months compared to $78 million in the last three and a half years from business operations. I mean, at what point do, does the rest of Wall Street look at this and then say, why do we not have just a, even just a small, even just a five or $10 million allocation of our treasury management to Bitcoin? Yeah. The, the, the thing with micro strategy, right? Uh, maybe you saw this as well, but uh, Michael Saylor, yeah. a top dog, I believe, at micro. Yeah. <laughs> he took to Twitter and said, some have asked how much Bitcoin I own. I personally hodl. 17,732 Bitcoin, which I bought at $9,882 each on average. I informed MicroStrategy of these holdings before the company decided to buy Bitcoin for itself. This guy owns pretty much 18,000 Bitcoin, which he bought for $10,000 each on average. Now, this guy is an absolute lunatic. Like, and that's not, I'm not even making a joke about Bitcoin going to the moon, right? The guy is just insane. I mean, that is, it is absurd, right? Well, I mean, 
you've got to have you've either got to have a lot more than that to start with or you've just got a you've just got a risk profile that says that's not as crazy as it as it seems i mean what's the difference between owning what's the difference between that and 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 uh, you know a a hundred million dollar portfolio of stocks uh, well, I, I'd probably say there's quite a few differences, really. Um, well, is there, is there? Well, no, no, I, I understand. I understand the the thrust of the, of your of your sentiment there. I mean, I like I would go for this demand and saying it is a, an awful lot different earning stocks. And what what I'm saying is the lunatic, just the the conviction of that that takes seventeen thousand Bitcoin, ten k each on average. So he's he was not early by any means. No, God no. And he's just gone. He's really pushed the boat out. So, you know, he, uh, in the fullness of time, you know, this is probably going to look like a really good trade, I, I, would, I would say, because, you know, I'm a... Wow. If only holder. he'd been a subscriber when I first recommended Bitcoin to, to our subscribers in, in November 2016. Yeah, then he'd be a very wealthy man indeed. He's probably 787 I was looking at it today. $787 is when I first recommended it to people. Right. Yeah, it's a... Uh, it's just the, the the sheer size and just the way he said that on Twitter. Just like this guy is nuts. That's like, a pretty, that, that's like uh, in a big big dick swinging contest. He's knocked everyone out. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, with the like with Bitcoin in general, it was actually it was actually a really interesting statistic that came out uh, from a chain analysts that yep. um, a company which effectively spies on the Bitcoin blockchain and then sells the data to law enforcement agencies. They, uh, there was a very interesting, um, there was a very interesting snap they come out with. I shall just find it, uh, which is that effectively, I think it's 98%. No, sorry. 92.8% of all Bitcoin has gained 5% or more in US dollar terms since it was acquired, which is pretty interesting. But it actually, if you go, if you sort of zoom in slightly more on it, um, there has been, as, as the Bitcoin price has increased by 50% in the last 180, 180 days, there has been a 125% increase in the value of Bitcoin held. Uh, no, 125% increase in Bitcoin held with a USD gain of 50% to 100% since it was acquired. So with a total of 2.2 million Bitcoin that applying to, right? Uh, which is 2.2 million Bitcoin out there. And it's up by 50% or 100% since it was acquired, which when you consider is only ever going to be 21 million. And, you know, we're, we're quite a bit below that just yet. That's pretty, uh, it's pretty crazy to think that there's that many people who've got Bitcoin. And the only thing that it's done is gone up by a huge amount, right? Yeah, it's crazy in a sense, but it's not, I just, I mean, I've always been pretty bullish on, on, on it and the technology uh in general uh, oh, oh yeah of, of course i'm just meaning in terms of the uh when you consider uh you know the the scale of the boom in 2017 and how brutally it crashed uh i would you know the the number of people who were hurt on the way down i would have thought was still quite a lot but from the way that looks it's actually looking like the majority of people who own bitcoin um are still have a positive view of it Yes, I, I think that what happened in 2017, while it may appear like it hit a lot of people, 
I think that really when you look at the perspective of the investment markets around the world was really a tiny amount of people. And I'm, I, I saw some numbers uh, about the amount of people that are aware of Bitcoin that actually hold Bitcoin um, and the amount of people that, that still invest in the markets. And it's like, it's still like under 10% of people even have uh, Bitcoin, you know, amongst investors. And I know we get, I still get mail from subscribers uh, through work that are like, ah, no, it's just a scam. It's, it's, it's all one big scam. There's, there's, there's no value to it. Um, I'll never touch it. And some people will never buy stocks and some people will never buy gold and some people will never buy Bitcoin. But I think that, I think you just, I think people just can't ignore it. And I think that it's now getting to a validation point because of companies like MicroStrategy, because of companies like PayPal now sort of legitimizing it, um, that, that people that, that that we've only just started to see, you know, the 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 real tip of the iceberg when it comes to people adopting it or or, or holding it or having it as part of uh, an investment portfolio. Now, what I think is really going to kick that off in a big, 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 big way is um, is when people can can hold Bitcoin. Um, as as its own asset, their own holding in in investment funds, or when when sort of the the online brokers legitimize it in a way that they can people can add it to their you know investment holdings to their ISAs or their SIP um, much easier. So like, yeah, I think you you might have seen the an email we yeah, got today yeah. about um, with Hargreaves Lansdowne that there's a Bitcoin price tracking fund that they no longer will allow people to buy because the FCA in the UK have banned, um, basically banned crypto derivatives. So that's uh, options, ETNs, um, uh, contracts with difference. Any crypto derivative is now banned in the UK. That doesn't, that, that's not a ban on crypto or, or not a ban on, on holding or buying or selling Bitcoin. It's a, it's a ban on the derivatives market in that sense because they right. deem it to be too risky. So that means that there will be some people that are shut out from, from that. But, uh, you know, there's already, there's talk that the Coinbase is going to offer effectively, um, what's, a, what's a effectively going to be an ETF? Um, that's backed with physical Bitcoin. And, and so there will be opportunities for the retail investor that maybe doesn't believe or want to want to hold physical, I say physical, but want to hold Bitcoin for themselves in a, in a wallet or whatever it might be at home or in a bank vault. There will be options coming, I think, very soon so that you, know, you can log into HL or II or whatever your broker is and you can just buy a, a Bitcoin fund. Now, again, we, I think we've talked about, I don't necessarily agree with that, but when you want to hold it, those things within the right kind of structure, be it a SIP or a ISA, okay, then, you know, maybe that's just a natural progression. I think when we hit that point is that there's going to be a bit of a, bit, bit of a mad rush to, to, to get, to get the, the Bitcoin to, to be in those funds to back it all. Right. Yeah. Um... Yeah, before I think there are an awful lot of ways we can go with that. Uh, but before we get there, I think we should review our first beer. Um, I'll start off with the uh, the Braybrook 
Keller Lager, which was uh, yeah, very nice indeed, 4.8%. And uh, yeah, very mild. It didn't taste 4.8%. I thought it tasted more like less than four, actually. Um, and it comes in a 500 mil can. I've got a lot of respect for uh, for like brewery. That. Yeah. yeah, they put them in a 500 mil can. That's very cool. Uh, you always like getting a little bit more. Yeah, you always want a bit more, a bit more bang for your buck. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know it is more, uh, you know, probably more aesthetically pleasing. I think with a nice uh, half liter can. Uh, but yeah, it, this was tasting pretty good. Uh, it did taste. It was a Kellogg, so it just have that sort of German uh, lager taste, which is better than normal lager, I suppose. And nothing to write home about in terms of the taste, but it was. Uh, it did taste uh, milder than it actually is. 500 mils as well. Uh, so I think I would give this one a, I think I would give it an A plus. I think I would give that an A plus. Sam, what did you make of yours? Uh, yeah, so the Anspach and Hobday uh, Peach Sour. Uh, look, it's it's pretty light. It's, it's inoffensive. It definitely tastes like a sour. It wasn't overly peachy. Um, it, it was... It, but it was, refre- it was refreshing to drink. But at the same time, it didn't really feel like you're drinking a beer kind of kind of just it just Smooth. doesn't it doesn't taste like a beer nice i'm sure it'd be nice to drink in summer um if you're maybe not such a huge fan of beer <laughs> <laughs> that's not an endorsement mate <laughs> um so it was it was okay i mean it it was drink it was easy to drink it was refreshing but it wasn't really a beer for me uh, not a huge fan of. I've I've had some peach sours before that I absolutely loved. Um, there's one back in Australia, and my I can't remember the name of it. My brother knows um, because he was the one that got me onto them because he knows the guys at Bruin. I'm going to find out who they were and see if I can get them over here. I'm going to send some to you, Boaz, because I think That's you it. might like them. Um, but this wasn't great. I'm just going to give this an A. Oh. Oh mate, you can you can be harder than that, you know. That we've uh, we have been awfully generous. Well, okay. To be fair, an A minus actually, because I could still drink it, and I to be fair, I'd probably still drink, you know, one or two if they were in the fridge in summer. But I'm probably not going to go and buy more anyway. Yeah, yeah. Ants back and Hob Day. They're they're. I think they're kind of hit and miss with the uh, with some of their beers. Some of them are good. Some of them aren't so good. Um, but on the uh, going back to our our sort of our thread there when it comes to when it came to bitcoin right you know how you were saying what's the difference between owning 100 million dollars in stocks i think for uh, well i mean it depends on the stock but if you're just talking about in stocks in general so it's probably going to be some kind of uh, you know it's either you know a large passive fund or it'll be a very large investment fund or it'll actually be just owning a lot of blue chips one of the big differences there though where i'd say you know bitcoin is a lot different from stocks would be uh, in terms of liquidating a portfolio in you know in relatively stable times you're going to have a lot more trouble liquidating 100 million in blue chips than you are liquidating 100 million in bitcoin now that's not to say that bitcoin is illiquid because it isn't but just in terms of the slippage there and just in terms of how much selling uh you know bitcoin can take i don't think the uh, the infrastructure is there yet and the liquidity you know the amount of demand uh, well, supply and you know, supply and demand, the buying and the selling in the market is uh, you know deep enough to really take a huge amount of selling. But uh, further to your point, when it comes to there's going to be a real supply squeeze, I mean that goes both ways, right? So if you do get uh, the development of large ETF products, and we are seeing a lot of them now, 
you know, a lot of uh, exchange traded vehicles which buy Bitcoin. Uh, and even when you're talking about, you know, stock in companies which buy Bitcoin, which then might, you know, buy more Bitcoin, uh, you know, that goes the other way around. So we're talking about there's going to be a big supply squeeze if you do see a large ETF or whatever start doing Bitcoin, uh, you know, sort of wholesale, uh, and it attracts a lot of interest. I mean, yeah, the, I mean, the, the liquidity goes both ways because ultimately there are only so many of these things out there. And there are an awful lot of people who have committed themselves to never really selling. I mean, uh, you've written recently on what what price you would actually start seriously selling Bitcoin. And it would be, you know, you're talking about a million dollars. I mean, you're talking about way higher than it is now. And, yeah. I, and I feel in a similar way. But that um, it is that that dynamic where there's not much uh, demand, well, there's not enough demand to deal with gigantic sales uh, at the current price without without cutting the price uh, a very large amount. I mean, it does go both ways. So if there is a, a huge amount of buying in the future, you know, that then the price will be forced up in a, in a big way. And that, that introduces an interesting dynamic, right? So when it came to things like, uh, so back in 1974, for example, uh, WikiLeaks uh, have leaked a huge amount of cables on various uh, treasury department discussions over in the US. Where uh, so for so after gold got uh, you know was unpegged from the dollar and then gold was uh, legitimized when it came to or legalized when it comes to individual ownership in uh, in the U.S. in 1974 you know it was illegal to own gold bullion for a long time until Gerald Ford uh, saw an advert on TV where a libertarian <laughs> legend was uh, showing a, a gold ingot and saying why is it why is it illegal for me to own this stuff after after Ford made it legal. Um, you know, there was a lot of wondering about gold demand in the States. And, uh, you know, these cables that WikiLeaks, uh, you know, publisher, published, uh, said uh, that there were all these discussions in, with market makers talking about how uh, they were very keen on developing gold futures and creating a liquid gold futures market, as that would uh, dampen the price, right? That would kill any huge surge in demand for gold. And in general, it would be a damper on the on the price because, of course, they're just paper contracts, right? So if you if you want exposure to gold, you can just buy a paper futures contract, which doesn't actually increase the amount of physical bullion demand, uh, un unless you know things get really really tight and there's a quite a you know a really explosive move and there's not enough gold to deliver and things like that, which a lot of the gold guys are you know sort of fantasize about and uh, <laughs> think it's going to happen and whatever. But just in in general terms, when there's a liquid paper futures market. That uh, that you know, all big players can just get exposure through the futures, which doesn't lead to big surges in demand. I wonder, the FCA has taken this course where hmm. they're um, they're going against, as you say, Bitcoin derivatives effectively. So things yep. like uh, you know, ultimately, I think they're trying to protect uh, the retail investor here, the everyman, uh, yeah. from the big downsides. Uh, and yeah, we, that's an entirely different debate. But if we just accept that this is what they've done, yeah. I mean, I I wonder, right? Because as as we've discussed on previous podcasts, you were you were pretty much against the idea of uh, creating a Bitcoin ETF a while ago, or at least you know you were you you were you said the idea of one is um, yeah. Is I think the idea is counterintuitive to right. to what, what Bitcoin is meant to be. Exactly. But they're happening anyway. Yeah. 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 Right. And I I totally agree. And it's the same with the PayPal thing, right? So they, it, yeah. buying and transferring uh, Bitcoin within PayPal or Revolut or any of these apps. Is not, it is not ultimately transacting in Bitcoin. 
and mm. at the same time and at the same, it's counterintuitive and it's in a, in a way you're almost betraying you know you're going counter to what satoshi wanted in the first place by using these things it's so the, when you think of it that of the cypher funk cypher punk yeah Exactly. Right. So you're going against the sort of the digital libertarian types uh, in doing so. So I wonder on that note, I mean, is the FCA doing the cypherpunk's job here by banning the derivatives and saying, if you only want, if you want to buy this stuff, you're going to have to actually buy it. You can't buy any of these paper products. You can't buy any ETFs or these ETNs or whatever. You know, you've got to go and get the physical or yep. the digital, yes, the digital, I guess. Well, but- I, I quite like, I, I quite like that, right? So I, I don't have any issue with the FCA banning the derivatives. I think, I think they're ridiculous. I think, I think those sorts of derivatives are ridiculous in the stock market. I don't like, I don't like them. Don't rate them at all. I'm, I'm, I've always been of the view, you want to buy stocks, go and buy stocks. Um, and I'm the same when it comes to crypto. I don't, I understand why these things exist, but they're complex, they're convoluted. For the average investor, it is just a realm that is not worth trading because most are going to lose in that arena. And I think that it, by the FCA banning crypto derivatives, I think it's great because you're right. You, if you want it, got to go and get it. And the great thing is it's just not that hard to get anymore. Um, so yeah, they're kind of doing the job. <laughs> they're doing yeah. the job of the true, um, the true libertarian financial libertarians and and the cypherpunks. If you want it, go get the physical thing because that's fine. They're not saying that's that's an issue, but the derivatives, yeah, because they are. They're, they're, it's it's risk. It's it's high risk on high risk. But then but then but then again, this is my argument is that that's exactly the same thing that happens in the stock market. It is. I, I feel it's very. It's a grand. It's very ironic in this way that they're. Yeah. Uh, you know, in in doing so. So if you imagine the U.S. Treasury Department trying to introduce, uh, you know, gold futures, uh, because it's going to dampen the price and that will further the. Um, it will further the sort of uh, the ambition or at least the control of the state over money supply in general. Because mm-hmm. in 1974, you know, it was only about three years after. Uh, you know, the, the dollar had been dealing from gold, and this was the only time, the first time in history, three years into the first time in history, ultimately, that money had been untethered from, uh, you know, precious metals in that way. So they were very afraid of it. And of course, you know, and they succeeded in getting that, that futures market going along. So it's quite ironic when you think about it, that uh, the FCA has done this when the FCA is almost, you know, they're not, it's not the treasury, ultimately. But it's ironic that in in getting, trying to get rid of those those derivatives, they are um, pushing people to go much more for the actual asset, which in turn is much more bullish for the asset because the asset is so scarce. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw it, but um, it was only- well, it's also, of- I think it's also much more transparent when you own the actual asset itself as well. Oh yeah, no, 100%. I mean, it's, it's, and, and which is more in, in tune with what Satoshi wanted in the first place, right? I mean, though, of course, you could be owning it through an exchange and, and things like that. But it, it just in general, it's uh, yeah, it's more it's more transparent, it's more honest ultimately. Yeah, I mean, there is the, the whole set. There's a reason there's a saying in in crypto that it's uh, if it's not your keys, then it's not your crypto, and that applies very much for Bitcoin. I mean, speak That's to right. all the Mt. Gox guys who are have been just completely screwed over 
and uh, and seeing the seeing the chap who probably stole it all uh, get absolutely printed off the back. Every of it. now I, and then, when I see the the email pop into my inbox, my personal inbox, that's just Japanese characters from the Mount Gox trustees. I'm like, oh, here we go again. This should be should be interesting. Get get a full page document in Japanese and then an English translation below. And and they're like, <laughs> oh, well, we've 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 pushed, we've delayed the proceedings again. And Oh, and it's like, you know, the, 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 the trustees have found more and then the value of them sort of moved and they're trying to figure out how to, oh, it's, it's, it's a great, so like one day someone's got to make a movie about this because it's a saga that's been dragging on now for six years. Um, and it's, I mean, I remember back when it first happened, it was like, I think it was February or around 2014. And then. Um, I went I, at the time we were doing sort of media things with some TV networks in the States and I was on a, a US network um, TV show and they were like asking me about Bitcoin and because the Mt. Gox hack and they were like, oh, is this guy fraudulent? You know, so what's going on? So he had this other guy and he was like, oh, it's bubblegum wrappers. Bitcoin's a scam. And I'm just like, nah, man, it's not. <laughs> so this is all around. This is six years ago. It feels like an eternity ago. Um, oh man, I can't. I can't believe that six years ago, and I wasn't even you know nearly as close to the space. Yeah, oh, I mean, it's, but, but six years as well as, as okay, it feels an eternity ago, and it's it's a long time. But it's in relative terms, it's really it's it's nothing, right? And now we're talking about Coinbase becoming a public company, and MicroStrategies, you know, own has made a hundred million profits in their Bitcoin purchases, and and PayPal's now accepting it. Now, PayPal used to freeze the accounts of people that wanted to buy. Still Bitcoin. do, mate. <laughs> How much this is this space has changed in six years gives me so much excitement about what's going to happen in the next six years. That it's, um, you know, I, I, I get a little sort of, you know, excited by it. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, 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 at the same time though, I, you know, I'm always, I guess, the uh, sort of the, the con to the contrary when it comes to the sort of bullish bearish idea when it comes. Uh, for example, like with the, there was this chap Giancarlo who worked, I believe it, yeah, it was CFTC. He was like the chair of the CFTC. Yeah, yeah, they call him the the, the granddaddy of crypto. Right, right. So that yeah, so this chap admits, like after he's left the job, I mean, he he full on admits that the um you know the CFTC, the SEC, the National Economic Council, Gary Cohen uh, at the time, yeah. Uh, they they similar to uh, the what happened with gold in the 70s i mean they introduced that uh, the, these guys were seeing the bitcoin uh, you know bull market take place in 2017 and they were very keen on introducing those futures because if they introduced the futures then that would really that would uh, and you know to quote him it would, it would pop the bubble right this would this would yeah. kill the bull market uh, and you know he's he's on the record saying yeah we did that and it worked, you know, we, we, we crushed Bitcoin by doing that. So I find it, um, I find it interesting that, you know, well, number one, that that was, that was even said in the first place. And of course, the Bitcoin futures are still there. So, I mean, the, the derivatives still exist. The FCA in this country may not be a big fan of them. Mm. Uh, however, you know, they are still there. Uh, what was it? I think they're, are they on CBO and CME? I think one of those got delisted. Do you remember? Uh, I think CBO got delisted. Right, but, you, but 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 then they they was they were picked up, so then someone else picked them up. Uh, oh, then there's the the I think it's it backed then is now doing them. Right, yeah, yeah. So, but so the the volume in futures has been increasing, steadily increasing. 
Yeah, right. So it's still the demand for those derivatives. And as you described, with Coinbase uh, want to go public and, they're, they're, and ev- like everyone now is ultimately tr- is trying to create a tracker product, which will just hoover up a load of passive money. I mean, that yeah. is the that seems to be from the people who are in the financial industry, but who have sympathies to the crypto uh, sort of cause, as it were. Uh, they're just trying to create a, some kind of passive tracker product that you can own in an ISO or in a SIP or in a trading account or you know shared dealing account and anything like that, in yeah. order just to because uh, in doing so they'll you know get their clip of the ticket they'll get their one point five percent annual management charge and if they if they get there first and it becomes the uh, you know the one big uh, passive product they'll be able to hoover up vast amounts in fees. Uh, which, of course, again, is not really exactly what Satoshi wanted, but it is, um, you know, it's a reality ultimately that we have to uh, that you have to deal with. And uh, well, it could be a massive trading opportunity ultimately because the supply of this stuff, if they, uh, unless they do something funny when it comes to the small print of these products, then you know they are going to need to get some of these private keys. They're going to be able to need to source them from some exchange somewhere, and the liquidity isn't that great, right? Yeah, I mean. It's yeah. It's the way it's going. The way it seems to be going is that um, sort of non-crypto organizations are really now just trying to figure out how they can alter their systems, how they can alter access for people that want some exposure, that just don't want to bother with wallets, don't want to bother with exchanges, don't want to bother with hardware devices. They just want, like a lot of stock investors, like as much as, you know, I'm a big advocate for active investing where people buy, you know, you know, individual stocks and build their own portfolios. The, the, the sheer weight of numbers, you know, shows that people are just happy to invest in funds and that the bulk of people will invest in passive investments like ETFs. So that, when you're talking about investment assets, which Bitcoin is an investment asset in that sense, um, I, you know, I, I hate, I always hate pigeonholing it into specifics because it's a combination of asset types in what it can do and what it represents and, and, and so forth. So it's, again, it's, it's a standalone thing that's not, it's a bit like something, a bit like something else, a bit like something else. It's a number of things at once. Um, but nonetheless, there are some people that would like exposure to it that don't want to bother with it, and I will just buy an ETF for it. But in order to have that ETF, and, and we, we've, we've sort of jumped over now the custody hurdle. I remember a few years ago where yeah. the issue for institutions was, was custodial solutions. Yeah, well, what They're happened just, to that? What happened to it? Well, it, it got fixed. There, there, there are custodial solutions out there now, like like Coinbase offers custodial solutions. There's loads of different companies that offer proper audited uh, cryptocurrency custodial. Um, and so now institutions have that sort of compliance check mechanism in place to know that, okay, well, if they're going to purchase these assets, there's an appropriate custodian that can, you know, have, could have those or, or, or maintain sort of the the ownership of those and so that's why now the sort of the etf space is evolving it as well so we a number of years ago we said that the institutional money would flow into the crypto space but there was a roadblock and that was the the, hmm. the compliance and the risk mitigation that, that, that needs to be checked and that sort of now that, that that box has been ticked with custodial and so now we are starting to see institutions flow into it and now those institutions are saying well now we want to give our customers access to that as well and so it's this sort of 
sort of bridge between between the crypto world and the existing sort of corporate um, and financial world, which, you know, I, was inevitable and was always coming. And we've said for some time that there was going to be a bridge between the two. And and look, you know, even even I'm I'm involved uh, on, in, in, on a separate note with a with a crypto based um, company that's that's looking to bridge the gap between the traditional financial world of asset management and cryptocurrency. So, you know, I get it because I come from both worlds. I understand both worlds. And so I understand the need for a bridge to, to have that between the traditional world and, and the cryptocurrency world and the sort of more libertarians amongst us. So that's, that's coming. That's inevitable. Um, we're seeing that play out now, but there will also be, you know, the, the, the true sort of, I'm running this show on my own. I'm going to have hardware wallets. I'm going to have them in a, you know, in a vault somewhere locked under key that I'm going to hold long term and I'm going to, you know, continue to stake and, and earn or whatever it might be. So, you know, there's, it's, it's just every indication, everything that I see from what's happening with sort of the traditional world and their involvement and, and investigation and, 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 you know, sort of early steps into it. And, and those that have been around for the last decade in it, um, it's all pointing in one direction and that's just a maturity in the space around the infrastructure, around the level of trust, the validation of it, not being just this flash in the pan kind of thing. Um, and I see that all as, 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 as a, as a positive sign that the, there's a bigger story underway, which is just how we look at, you know, the connections of, of, of finance between people around the world. Um, and I think that cryptocurrency is adding to that uh, in a significant way that that's now starting to be, I guess, um, recognized, I, I suppose, in the way that it should. So have they actually fixed the custodial problem, right? Because yeah. the, I, I remember, um, you know, I remember sort of 2017 kind of period. That was that was a big issue. Well, I mean, it was an issue ever since. But I remember it was spoken about in a, in a lot of ways. And I, I remember never being convinced by what people said could be a custody solution. So how do you prove that you have custodianship over uh, the Bitcoin, for, for example, without revealing the private keys, which of course gives the observer of the private keys access to the Bitcoin, right? So how do you, how do you prove that you have something in that way? Because, um, well, other than, for example, simply making a transaction. Yeah, with you it. can make a microtransaction. Right, right. So that seems, yeah. So is that is that actually what's happening with all of these things? I mean, how are they? How are these uh, funds? For example, the one that's been banned by the FCA, but it still exists. You know, listed in Sweden, I think. Um, uh, I think it's Bitcoin Tracker One, and it's an extra. The way the I think the way that they got around this issue is the fact that it was an exchange traded note and not an exchange traded fund. So they were issuing notes, which are debts, rather than shares. And if you if you if you're going for shares, then uh, you need to prove, uh, you know, what the what the, the you know needs accounts effectively. It needs to you would need to actually show what the private keys were ultimately. I think, uh, but they got around this by doing exchange traded notes, which just means if you own one of these notes, then uh, the company owes you the value of one Bitcoin. 
Uh, and whether, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, if they can pay that or not, because they're ultimately they dealt with that by buying Bitcoin themselves and knowing themselves that they had the Bitcoin. So they could just owe you one of the what what one of these uh, what one Bitcoin would be. You would owe you would own the debt of that, and that would trade like it because everyone would trust the company. Um, and you know that that seemed to have worked relatively well. I mean, it looks like they uh, the company that does it. Uh, I think it's um, yeah, is it CoinShares? I think. But you know, Bitcoin Tracker One uh, attracted an awful lot of assets. It still is. It probably will well outside the UK. Yeah, uh, but they got around it by going for that exchange-traded note system, where they didn't actually need to, be, you know, be like a company and issue exchange-traded uh, shares. Ultimately, they weren't an ETF; they were an ETN, which was a technicality. But they got, but that's how they got around it. Then they were very early to the space. How is it that all these other places, like Fidelity and that, have actually managed to get around the custodian, uh, custodianship problem? Look, I, I don't necessarily know how their audit trails validate it but it's not hard to prove ownership of um of of, of something like a bitcoin if if anything it's easier to prove that you own a bitcoin um than it would be to to, to prove that you own, own a stock you know you'd okay maybe you'd, like you'd produce a contract note you produce the public wallet that holds the bitcoin and then you would just you would make a transaction. You wouldn't even necessarily have to make a transaction to somebody else. Um, you could, you could just make a transaction Crazy to stuff. your own uh, wallet. Just, so it's a bit like how, so the, the, the claims, there's a few court cases going at the moment with Craig Wright and, and, and trying this whole thing about, is he Satoshi? He says he is. And there are all these original wallets that, you know, the, the courts are like, well, you know, if you've got control over them, then prove it and, you know, do something with them, which he hasn't done because, you know, he probably doesn't have access to them or he says that someone else has got access. So the easy way to prove that you've got something in something uh, like a, like a, a Bitcoin wallet is to just make a transaction. And I, I would believe that's a probably significant part of how they prove custodial ownership um, of these the actual assets and then it's easy once you once you know they own that particular wallet um then you can just jump onto the blockchain and just see anyone can see like if if i knew what the public address was for the micro strategy um holdings i'd jump onto you know blockchain explorer and i'd go and have a look so if anything it's 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 incredibly transparent then um and makes custodial uh auditing ridiculously easy really well i mean i i think i get where kind of the from from the outset i can see where that is but when you consider the law there is no ultimate ultimately there's no like property law that's written in about this when you get to things like uh, the fact that more than one person could know the private key ultimately so even if you can verify that the public wallet that owns all the bitcoin is yeah this is owned by this company there could be plenty of people who know the private key within within that company but or yep. ultimately you just need more than one or one uh, you know, who, you know, has a drug problem or has a debt problem sure. or uh, sure. something like that and could then just steal the entire thing. And then that's no different. That's no different to custodial solutions with, you know, stocks or anything else. Uh, well, I think with Bitcoin, it's a, it's, it's a, I think it's a lot different with Bitcoin because if you just have that private key, you know, it is so much easier. Ultimately, with something like stocks, for example. Yeah, you, you can get the legal back. title to those shares is way different 
than having also you have total ultimate access to Bitcoin if you have the private key. So yeah, I, wonder, a, I wonder how they've gotten around it. I mean, ultimately, there must have been a load of compromises that have been made here by, yeah. the, by the companies that are doing this. So there's um, a lot more finality with, with cryptocurrency, right? Like you said, if somebody, if somebody just wanted to screw the company, they could send them, that had access to the private key, they could send them to a wallet that they controlled and then they could burn the private key to that wallet and those Bitcoin would just be locked away forever with no one ever able to get access to them. Yeah, but I mean, they could do it for, they, I mean, they could uh, get it into Monero using some of the uh, more, um, you know, <laughs> some yeah, yeah. more dark yeah. arts of crypto. I mean, they, they wouldn't need to destroy it. I mean, they could really just steal it for themselves using uh, you know even just getting in with a load of these stable coin yeah. foundations yeah absolutely you know, false identity and then you know i think the one to, like tornado cash is a mixer for ethereum so there's a, a whole bunch of different ways you do it. i think the i think the way they would have to get it would be the checks and balances around those that have access to it and i think there would probably be um and the, the, this may be expanding even beyond my technical knowledge of, of it ways that you need multiple people to actually verify the transaction before a transaction can take place a multiple signature wallet yeah yeah that sounds yeah that yeah the uh, yeah that adds uh, that it's adds a bit color. like it's a bit like the nuclear um football right maybe you need yeah. you know two people to turn the key simultaneously in order to uh to send them on their way yeah 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 there are uh yeah a lot of it's, it is a very interesting subject. Personally, I am surprised. That, that, that does bring up, sorry, just, just sorry to cut you off, but just that does raise the other thing is that when it comes to the ability to innovate and solve problems for some of these things, we are still in a very early stage with it. But these, every time a problem is identified, because of the way that it exists, is it's really a, a digital thing um, and the new technologies that there's, there's always development around fixing those problems and making the whole ecosystem better well i think there's yeah i mean there's a i say i'm surprised that they've gotten over the custodian issue this quickly right mm, mm. Uh, and, uh, and you know like i say i don't actually understand it totally how they've managed to do it but the fact that they have done it and they have done it so fast speaks to the huge demand the huge incentive for the yeah, person definitely. who fixes the problem ultimately yeah. right so yeah, I mean, well, like you said, like so, like chain at ch chain analysis, for example, like you mentioned before, um, you know, they're they're a forensic blockchain analysis company. That that, and I think this is the other thing. So again, this is sort of maybe going a little off topic, but people sort of talk about how the future of of our world, you know, with robotics and automation, is going to you know get rid of all these jobs. But just like every sort of massive step in in technology revolutions and evolutions before has opened up new industry for opportunity and growth, it's the same thing here. Like Chainalysis all of a sudden becomes a forensic blockchain company that employs a bunch of people and makes money and contributes to a wider ecosystem that didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago because because cryptocurrency didn't exist. Yeah, I mean, so to be the uh, sort of the, the the contrarian there, I mean, Chainalysis was, and I think to, I, I don't actually know, but I mean, it was founded ultimately as to analyze blockchains in order to find criminal activity and then to report that activity. Yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were trying to ultimately just uh, find people that were using coin tumbling services uh, and trace it all the way back 
to where they were and then to report who they were. And I imagine, I, yeah, and this there's, is there's good things and bad things about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, I mean, good things. I mean, I'm not, I'll, I'll stay neutral there. I mean, it's just uh, in terms yeah, of, it's just, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like observing the weather almost. I mean, it's just, <laughs> this is a product, you know, of what, uh, you know, it's a product of the environment ultimately. And, uh, you know, there, I would imagine that a lot of the money that business makes is still from law enforcement ultimately, which I would think so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's very existence is uh, indicative of the fact that this is a solution, right? I mean, the fact that criminals do use it, crypto in any way, uh, is, uh, I think, evidence of its uh, effectiveness as a means of exchange, right? So you might not like it, uh, the fact that criminals are using it, but the fact that they are using it shows that it can be used as a means of exchange with anonymous people, etc. Um, so I think it is of, uh, yeah, it, it's always... Um, I mean, uh, crypto always comes with bad actors and, and everyone is very, very quick to jump on the... Uh, Everything comes the with bad actors. actors. Yeah, I mean, you know, fiat currency... Has the world is full of bad actors. Right. <laughs> what were we talking about before? Cacistocracies? Yeah, quite, quite. Anyway, <laughs> Sam, I, I actually noted that uh, while we were quick to... Uh, while we were quick to review our second beer, we, we made a grand mistake of not saying what our second beer was. So, uh, <laughs> yeah... Um, in terms, what were you? What was your second beer, and how would you rate it? Right. So my second beer was called "Am I Being Basic," which is a New England IPA, six point eight percent from Pressure Drop, uh, brewed in London. Tasting notes suggest fruity, juicy, and hazy. Well, it definitely ticks uh, all of those boxes because as soon as I opened it, big waft of um, real sort of fruit salad kind of smell about it I, I love the label on this thing there's like just these pictures of there's a there's a beer can there's some uh, four aces playing cards there's a, a hatchet um one of those little um uh kitties with the the arm that goes up and down a, a, a guitar a laptop a snail i'm not really sure how it all comes together but it's actually a really great uh, little design uh new england ipa uh 6.8 I think it's in the sweet spot. I'm, I'm really liking this one. So this is this is like the complete other end of the spectrum um, from the peach sour. Uh, yeah, I, I like I like a I like a IPA, New England IPA with that fruity fruitiness about it. It's in a sweet spot for me with the strength. So it's not overpowering, but at the same time when you drink it, you know you're drinking a bloody beer, and, and I really like that that about it. Um, I. I'm really enjoying this a lot, actually. And I'm going to give this a double B. Oh, wow. High praise yeah. indeed. High praise indeed. Uh, over on my end, I was drinking uh, Water Jump, which is by Whiplash Brewing, uh, which is uh, in Dublin, actually. And uh, this is Water Jump. It's an IPA, 6.8%. Uh, and again, does not taste 6.8%. Really quite, uh, really very smooth. An awful lot of hops in this one, uh, Galaxy Strata, um, and uh, a very whiplash. All of their labels are kind of following the same theme, where they've got a nice white label, same typeface, black typeface, uh, and then some kind of uh, sort of colorful image in the middle that stands out quite a lot. Uh, but yeah, Water Jump IPA. Um, I would say this was, uh, yeah, it, it tasted good. Tastes like an IPA, uh, quite sweet, uh, all, all things considered. 
Um, and I think I would, uh, I think I would give this overall. I think I'm going to give it an A. I, I'll probably rate it the same as uh, as the first one that I had. In that it's um, tastes pretty nice. Nothing to write home about, but it is a higher percentage than it tastes like. So uh, very nice indeed. But uh, nothing, nothing crazy good on my side uh, this week. One bonus for this actually, I pulled off the label from this can, and I've actually got two labels. So I, I was pulling the label off, right? And uh, it just keeps going and going and going. So I've got it on both sides, this thing. I've got a double double printed, uh, which is always, which is probably some kind of lucky, uh, you know, a lucky label. For, for, for some reason, so I ended up, now, now that I've started looking at Pepsi Clear, um, oh, yeah. and Chris <laughs> Pepsi Crystal, sorry, and Tab, um, oh, yeah. Because I looked at them like twice, all of a sudden eBay starts sending me suggestions about things I might like. And oh, yeah. um, one of them was a Lucasade bottle that had a misprint or it was like a miss, it was like a production uh, error or something. Oh, yeah. And it was on eBay, believe it or not, with a, a, uh, a price, a suggested price or a um, sort of reserve price of 10,000 pounds. For one bottle of a misprinted Lucasade. What was the misprint? It better be good for ten thousand pounds. It was. I think it was just a chancer, to be honest with you, trying to get some sucker to buy a uh, weird bottle of Lucasade for ten grand. Pretty, uh, pretty entrepreneurial, I must say. I hope the misprint was good and it wasn't a fake, and he just decided to uh, try and try and sucker somebody. Um, but yeah, I do. It is. Uh, it does feel special when you get that double label. And when you got you know a, a thicker can, and it's, it's like a double rainbow, double <laughs> double rainbow, double double la- double label, all the way, yeah. Anyway, Sam, <laughs> we should probably wrap this up because we're uh, we we have actually been. I think this is uh, maybe even longer than our than our normal ones. In terms of your uh, closing closing comments, have you got anything more to say? Uh, no, I mean, w- w- when's the when's the actual U.S. election? Are we still a week away, or is it this weekend? I, can't, I can No, no, uh, it's not this weekend. Uh, it is on Tuesday, but it'll be American time, and it'll probably go all through the evening. I would imagine. So, so, so this time next week, we will know who the the, the next or or um, continuing president of the United States is. Well, yeah, it'll be Trump, but yes, we will know for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, that's by next true. week. <laughs> I'm excited. You know what? I'm a little excited by it. I love, I do love these things. Like you can't ignore the fact that the United States is the, one of the, the biggest, most influential countries in the world. I mean, of, obviously. Um, and so these, you know, these are significant moments in history. Um, and it's, you know, for all the shit that's going on and the slagging matches and people hating on each other. Um, just, I think people should take a moment, enjoy the show and uh, sit back and, and, and have a beer, have a good beer um, and, uh, and enjoy the show, I think. It's probably the best thing I'd want to close with today. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm tempted. Uh, you know, I may well do that. I may take, uh, you know, take Wednesday off or something. Uh, I may you know, just stay up all night and just watch the news as it comes out because it is great theatre and it only it comes great. around every four years. I mean, it's like the World Cup almost, but way shorter. Olympics, World Cup, presidential elections, you know, yep. they, 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 these, are, these are great times. 
Indeed, indeed. But yeah, we shall know next week. Uh, we'll probably probably discuss it uh, in uh, great detail, um, and uh, you know, and we may even have some quantitative ease to quaff mm. during our next episode. But this was the twentieth episode of Booze, Booms, and Bust. That is all we have for this week. If you are listening to this, I I do hope that you're having a good time and are relaxing, maybe even excited and interested in in the presidential election, and that our conversation here has been at least somewhat stimulating. But that's all for this week. We shall be back next time. And until then, we wish you a good one.